Hello and welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumbiner. And I'm Kristen Chase and we're the co-founders of CoolMomPicks.com. Today, we're going to be talking about how to best communicate with our kids to stay connected and help them grow into happy, well-adjusted adults. Yes, that would be the goal of (laughs) parenting and I'm so glad we have great guests to help us do that. And of course, we'll close out our show with our cool picks of the week and we'll be right back jumping into this discussion right after this. This episode is brought to you by Google Kids Space. Google Kids Space is a kids mode with content to help your child discover, create, and grow available on select Android tablets. It's designed to spark your kids' curiosity and creativity, inspiring them to explore their interests through a library of quality content with apps, games, books, and videos. The five tabs on Google Kids Space, Home, Play, Read, Watch, and Make, are full of teacher-approved apps, hand-picked books from top publishers, and videos that encourage learning and hands-on play. And parents will be glad to have the suite of parental controls through the Family Link app from Google. Just visit their site, families.google.com slash kids space. That's kids and then space. So two S's in there, families.google.com slash kids space for more information. Tablets with the Google Kids Space Kids Mode start at just $59, perfect for the holidays. Once again, that's families.google.com slash K-I-D-S-S-P-A-C-E. All right. So let us tell you a little bit more about our two guests. We've got two guests today, which is pretty exciting. Well, first off, we've got William Sticksrude, PhD, and Ned Johnson. They are the co-authors of the national best-selling book, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives, and their newest book, just out this year that we're going to be focusing our conversation on today. What do you say? Talking with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home, which we'll be chatting about. Ugh, I am so excited, Liz. I have been waiting for this interview. You know, this is like your dream topic. It is. So it is. Uh, just a little more so you know how esteemed they are and how excited we are. So Bill's a clinical neuropsychologist and founder of the Sticks Rude Group, as well as a faculty member at Children's National Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at GWU, School of Medicine. Oh, my brother's alma mater. You may have also seen his work featured in NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Times of London, Wall Street Journal, and a lot more. And interestingly, he's also a longtime practitioner of transcendental meditation and plays in a rock band called Close Enough. That's true. It's your people, Krista. Yes. Ned Johnson is also joining us. He's an author, speaker, and founder of Prep Matters, an educational company that provides academic tutoring, education, planning, and as you might have guessed, does prep. He is a professional tutor geek, which he's been since 1993, making him a battle-tested veteran on topics around stress regulation, student anxiety and performance, parent-teen dynamics, and tips to help kids find the motivation to reach their full potential, even when things are tough like these days. He's also the host of the Prep Talks podcast, where you'll find helpful conversations with parenting and educational experts. And you've seen his work in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and so many others. We are so lucky to have them both here today to cover this topic. So welcome, Ned and Bill. Thanks, Liz and Kristen. Great to be here. (laughs) 
<laughs> we've heard great things about you and your work and we're, we're really pleased to, to have this on. Likewise, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we're jumping right in. If I haven't already gone head first in my excitement, I'm I'm ready to go. And I know you both are too. When it comes to communicating with our kids, I think this is so important. And I want to start right off the bat with empathy, which you do too. It's an entire chapter. It's woven throughout the book. And you know what? I feel like this should be a t-shirt, but right. But like empathy is hard, right? And I think a lot of parents have good intentions, right? We want to help. We see our kid in pain and we feel it and we want to fix it. And I think sometimes parents feel like they're letting their kids off the hook, right? Like it's like, oh, we're not actually dealing with a problem if we just listen to their problems. So when you talk to parents, how do you get them to that aha moment when this concept of listening or mirroring or the buy-in and all those things that you do to show empathy feels so foreign to them? You know, and also a lot of us didn't have that from our own parents as kids. So can you both talk about that? Sure. But you know, the main focus of our first book, The Self-Driven Child, is on how important it is for kids to have a sense of control over their own lives. When we started thinking about writing a book about communicating with kids, we thought we really ultimately the, the purpose really is, is to connect with kids and develop a close relationship. And every place we look to understand how does that happen, it really it, it's through empathy and validation. The idea being that if, if a kid is really upset about something and we can resist the urge to try to talk them out of it or to solve the problem for them, we just listen. We let them know we're trying to understand that's what really calms hard emotions. And also, when you share hard emotions with people, that's what makes you feel close to each other. There's no question it's not easy to do because we have to check our basic impulses. But this idea to seek to understand, first try to understand where a kid is, is so powerful. I think most of us have probably had the experience of having a spouse or a parent tell us a problem or we tell them a problem. They start saying, well, what about this? You should have done this and you should have that. And, you know, I think a little bit of the meta from Mars women from Venus. And it's like, am I asking you to tell me what you do? Your job here, pal, is to, <laughs> is to listen to it. I'm just trying to tell you about my day. And I think most people have had that experience of feeling like they were trying to share their day or what was hard and having people start telling them how they should have done it differently, which mm. just feels like being criticized. You know, so, so oftentimes people have had that experience. And you can also say, well, in our experience, probably nothing is more painful than having your kid bring you a problem and you have what you think is great advice, a great solution, you know, how they can do this differently or see it differently and offer that advice and then have people, oh, dad, you don't understand and blah, blah, blah. blah. And you're like, how did this go so wrong? And it's almost, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you think it won't look, and then you're upset because they're upset with you, right? And you think, oh, this mm -hmm. kid would just listen. He wouldn't, I mean, he tells me a problem and then he rejects the advice. And there's nothing wrong with giving advice. It's simply that that shouldn't be step one. That should be step two. Uh, I love that. And how do we know <laughs> when to go to step two? Because I admit, as much as I've had interviews like this, I read about it. I've read your book. I know all these things. I have teens and they still say to me, you know, mom, I wasn't asking for advice. I was just venting or I was just telling you about my day. And I was like, oh gosh, you're right. Yes, please carry on. Well, for years when I, when the self-driven child first came out and I was in schools where my kids attend, I would get cornered by a parent who would start telling me about what they told their kids kid, their teen. And, you know, basically, isn't this the right advice? Because my kid's not hearing it, you know, and after they talked and talked and talked, I'd sort of pause, take a breath and say, well, may I offer you some advice? And they sort of pause and they let their shoulders down a little bit and they, they say, sure. And I said, 
just say to your kid, may I offer you some advice, mm. right? And <laughs> simple, right? Ask them what right? they need. Yeah. <laughs> right. And if your kid says no, well, then of course you shove it down the throat because that's, no, I'm teasing. Right? You know, <laughs> I mean, I have a daughter who is, she's a senior in high school and she's brilliant, but she is even more stubborn than her dad. And when she doesn't want to hear it, good grief, she does not want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And I think that I have all sorts of wonderful advice. You can, you know, (laughs) in my head, it's all perfect, right? And I realized long ago that the only way for me to be successful and having her be open to my advice is simply to say, hey, can I share a thought with you? I have an angle on that. Do do you want to hear it? And if she sort of like, well, then save my breath, save my breath. And typically what would happen is one of two things, either she would figure things out on her own, which is even better than having me solve the problem. I mean, yes. I may feel more yes. but goodness, don't we want kids to be able to soothe themselves or find solutions for themselves? That was where, you know, to be an adult, that's what we're aiming for. Or she would eventually come back around and say, okay, so what was it you were going to say? <laughs> and now we have buy-in. So a lot of what we talk about in this book is it's not the what, but the how, because parents always have wonderful ideas and wonderful advice. It's simply that if you want to be effective, mm-hmm. which you do, then we want to change the how in part again, because few things can be more stressful than knowing your kid is struggling or suffering, trying to give advice. They get upset with you. You're upset with them for being upset with you. And now everyone's now we're not part of the solution. We're part of the problem. We just think mm. with some pivots, we can do this differently. And then we're on the same team with them. Well, I, I think that's so helpful too, to remind parents that this is a skill that you learn, right? Empathy is a skill, but also the way to talk to your kids in an empathic manner. That was really hard to say, by the way, in an <laughs> empathic manner Nailed it. is challenging. I mean, Bill, as someone who has been in the profession for many years, like people take classes to learn how to be empathic, right? Like, so, so oh. this isn't a skill that you just have. And so can you talk a little bit about the, what I got, because that that approach or that technique or whatever you want to call it, I find to be so effective. And what it does too is it's curiosity and it's a non-judgmental way of summing up what you're hearing, right? Yes. And one of the oldest tools in psychotherapy came out of Carl Rogers' work in the 1950s and 60s to try to understand people, let them know, I'm trying to understand you. Somebody's mad about something you say, it sounds like you're really upset about that, that, that really frustrated you. You make those kind of comments and they, they don't come naturally to us. So we have to kind of learn how to do it. But if we do that, it tends to, to people feel understood. And when they when they feel understood, that they calm down. And so it's been around for a long time. And we, we talked to this guy named Aran Magan, who's from Israel and who teaches communication. And he uses this term wigging. And wigging stands for what I got. And the idea is, you know, Ned tells me about something. And I said, Ned, from what, what I got from what you just said is, and I just paraphrase what Ned said in a way that lets him know, I think I'm understanding you and I'm trying to understand you. Uh, mm-hmm. It does take practice. But one of the cool things is that we've really discovered since we started talking about this stuff is how quickly things can shift. There's a story in the book. A couple of years ago, Ned and I were in Palo Alto and, and we talked about some of this stuff. And the woman who arranged the lecture in Palo Alto forwarded us an email. And a mom said, I heard you lecture last night. When I came home, my seventh grade son was hysterically crying. He said, I'm the weakest kid in seventh grade. Um. And the mom said, I, I wanted to t- say, honey, that couldn't be true. I know, I, I know that you're, you're, I want to say, well, let's call the PE teacher. Well, let's start working on it. I wanted to solve it for him or I wanted to talk him out of it. I checked that. All I said is, that sucks. I think if I wanted to be a strong and I felt I was the weakest kid in my grade, I'd feel upset too. Mm-hmm. He said that empathy, that sucks. And the validation, a lot of people would feel like that. It's normal to feel like that. Mm-hmm. What happened is, I'd, I'd love to be able to help. Why don't we sleep on it? Talk about it in the morning. The next morning, this kid brings her a written plan 
for how he's going to get stronger. Wow. And she said it was just, and it's just one simple thing of checking mm-hmm. that natural impulse to solve their problems or to try to not to have them be upset, to kind of calm them down by talking them out of it. And if we check those things, it takes practice doing that. But you can see dramatic changes very quickly. I love the idea of giving kids the space to come up with a solution and not even telling them, go find a solution. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and the other thing is, you know, so often we can see a kid, you know, a person's quote unquote thinking about it the wrong way. And if only they would look at it this way, right? And when we try to talk him into it, they just fight us. But that ability to put things into perspective and kind of change how we're looking at it is an executive function. And executive functions are screwed up by stress, anxiety, anger, and other hard emotions. And so in addition to help putting this kid in a headspace where he could find a solution. She was helping him in a, a headspace where he could think about it differently and realize, you know, I'm not stuck here. This won't be like this forever. All these things that this mom might have said and able to embrace that for himself. I'm like literally taking notes for myself. Not well, I want to put a fine point on that. <laughs> Just to be able to hear that when your kids are in distress or they're upset, you know, or same for us too, right? We're all humans that our executive functioning skills, like our ability to actually problem solve is not going to be at its best. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're dealing with teenagers, it's a free for all. Right. <laughs> so I think it's so important to hear that when you're able to show empathy and understanding and give them the space to have those feelings, and then they're able to get out of what I call the worry brain, get out of their amygdala, mm-hmm. right? Get into their prefrontal cortex and then be able to solve it themselves. And the same applies for us too. Yep. Right. So I just love that. It's so helpful. It's funny. I have a daughter who is a senior in high school, and when she gets really unhappy, she really clams up and so you can see it, you know, the storm cloud on her face, you know, you know, are you okay? Shoulder shrug. Anything I can help with shoulder shrug. Right. And she won't. Ned, do we have the same teenage daughter? Um, (laughs) Is there something I don't know here? I I think this is contagious actually is how this works. Anyway, the oh my God variant of this running around, which is so she will get really, she'll get, and I was like, oh my goodness. And I, it's hard, right? Because you want to help, but I don't even know what the problem is. Did I make her mad? Did her mom make her mad? Did her friend, did the world, you know, oh my gosh. And so you naturally feel this tendency to want to pull it out of her, but she doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to do it. And so what I've taken to doing is these very tools we talk about in the book, where I'll say something, because I, I don't want to pry. I do want to give her space, but I also don't act like I'm not seeing her. And I'll say, well, it sure looks like you're pretty upset about something. And if I can help in any way, I want to do this. But I also don't want to pry because you don't have to tell me what's upset. I don't know if it's about me or something else. Is it okay if I check back in maybe, you know, 20 minutes or so just to check in? And this is a way of saying, I see you. I can Mm -hmm. tell that you're in pain. I'm sorry that you're in pain. I will help in any way that I can, but I'm not going to make it my problem rather than your problem. I'm not going to force you and asking permission to come back around in 20 minutes. And I swear every time I do this, if I say I'll check in an hour, she comes down in 30 minutes. If I say check Mm. in 30 minutes, she comes downstairs in 20 minutes and whatever cloud it is has left her. Never have I found out what she was actually upset about, Mm. but she's been able to figure it out. You know, and, and, and Bill shared with me when my kids were much younger that one of the most important outcomes of childhood in adolescence is being able to soothe yourself. And this is the hard work that my daughter is doing is, is figuring out how to talk herself out of the hard feelings that she's experiencing as we all do. Well, I'm going to be using that whole situation daily with my 13 year old. <laughs> yeah. It's such a helpful roadmap yes. and, and script for it parents. And is. I love how specific and actionable all your advice yes. is. Like, I think that's what's so great about the book. And another mm-hmm. thing we really liked is this idea of the parent consultant that you presented. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've ever heard it put that way no. before, but no. it really captures, I think, how a lot 
lot of parents want to be with their kids. So can you explain that a little bit better? Sure. That idea came out of very early in my work. I, I see all these families fighting about homework. You know, as I'm a neuropsychologist, I see kids who have learning disabilities or ADHD and all this fighting about homework. And I finally said to parents, just tell your kid, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. I'm willing to do anything I can to help you. I'm willing to be your homework consultant. I'm willing to sit with you from 6.30 to 7.30 every night and help you, but I'm not willing to chase around the house. I'm not willing to to make this my problem. I'm not willing to act like somehow I'm supposed to be able to make you do your homework. I couldn't make you do it. All you have to do is flop to the floor or close your eye. I couldn't make you do it. But you, you, you shift the energy from I'm in charge to I'm here to help. I gave a lecture in Houston about three years ago. I happened to mention one of the most elite high schools in Washington, D.C. And a woman came up to me after the talk and she said, you know, I'm a therapist here at the Manager Clinic, this wonderful mental health clinic in Houston. We know this independent school in D.C. really well because so many of the graduates get into the most elite colleges, but they can't handle it emotionally. So they Mm. take a medical leave and they come here for treatment. She said, to the one, they just don't have enough experience running their own life, solving their own problems. This idea of parent as consultant has three implications. One, which is that we want to offer help. We want to offer advice, but we don't want to try to cram it down kids' throats. Second is as much as we can, we want kids to make decisions about their own life. And third is we want kids to to solve their own problems because that's how you develop that confidence of being able to handle hard stuff is handling hard stuff. And if we try to make sure they never encounter any roadblocks or jump in to solve the problem for them, we deprive them of that experience that trains the brain when something stressful happens to go into coping mode Mm -hmm. as opposed to try to avoid it. I think as parents, it can be really tough because a consultant is sort of an objective third party that can come in and see the macro view of things and help you solve, right? And I think as parents, what's challenging is we are completely emotionally invested in the outcome. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, That's yeah. a million dollar question, Liz. Yes. How do you move past that? I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, because I mean, if you're a consultant and you get, you get paid regardless, you know, but you get to skip away if the company falls on hard times, where if you're the middle manager, you go down with a ship. But, you know. <laughs> we're all just middle managers, Kristen. Yeah. That's all it comes you down know, to. <laughs> Bill has this great line of thinking in it. So there's kind of three questions to ask ourselves. And one is, whose life is it? Two, whose problem is it? And three, whose responsibility is it? And I remember when he first shared this to me probably five years ago, I was sort of reflexively, whose problems? Of course is my problem. This is my child. These are my children. Of course is my problem. But if we really can think about this, this is our children's lives. And, you know, so often we see kids who are underperforming, who will kind of drive their proverbial car right into a tree just to prove that it's their car, right? Not that it's someone else's. And we talk about in the book, stress tolerance. And I just want to put a point on this, that, you know, stress tolerance, exactly as Bill is saying, is you experience hard things and then you recover from them. And really it's adversity with support, oftentimes emotional support and offering health advice with support that develops resilience. The problem is if we jump in as parents and constantly save kids over and over and over, I'm sure every single time they're grateful, they are less stressed, we're less stressed, but over time we're creating what Madeline Levine, I know you had her on a few weeks ago, describes as accumulated disability because the experience of being saved over and over and over wires the brain so that in the presence of stress, you're constantly 
constantly looking for someone else to save you, mm -hmm. as opposed to looking within yourself to either say, this is hard and I can tolerate it, or this is hard and I can figure out a way to make it better. Wow. The, and, and you just, you can't teach people to do that. They have to experience this for themselves. We can hold their hands, we can support them, but if we save them over and over, we're making our kids forever the damsel in distress, looking to the sky, as opposed to what are the tools that I have within me or in my own hands. Okay, so basically I think that you should be on Calm, the app, and you should say all these things in both of your lovely voices and then parents can just listen to them because I feel very soothed right now. I don't know about you, Liz, but I'm like, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. I don't know. That's my proposal. We, we, uh, if you know someone there, we would love to do it. I'll tell you, there, there's a, we talk about this non-anxious presence and Bill can riff on this in a minute, but an experience working with a kid. So again, I do all this test prep and I was talking with this kid I was working with. It was the day before she heard back from her early decision dream college. And the whole family was invested in her getting in there. And she's, you know, understandably pretty, you know, worked up about it. And I have no idea what I said. And she stopped and looked at me and she said, you're like the king of anti-stress. Wow, <laughs> high praise. I said, I really appreciate that. But honestly, that, that, no, I said, I might be the heir apparent, you know, the prince in waiting. <laughs> I said, you gotta meet my friend, Bill. And it's really, it's something that we both, practice, you know, of practices like translative meditation, which Bill turned me on to a decade ago, and taking seriously all the things that support our own well-being, our own mental health of sleep and exercise and doing things that are meaningful to us and engaging with people whom we enjoy. Because ultimately, you know, Bill is trying to help families and kids get out of hard places and get to a better place. I'm trying to help people be motivated, you know, be stress tolerant, perform under pressure. And a big part of how we help people not be afraid about where they are now and how they'll get to a better place is by our not being afraid about where they are now and saying, this is just part of your path. Uh, and, and, and there's a way to move forward up from here. Yes. Okay. So you read my mind because I do want to talk about this non-anxious presence. So Bill, mm. let's talk about this because our kids are already anxious, right? They were anxious before, and then we had a pandemic and now they're super anxious, right? And the last thing we want to do is make them even more anxious. Liz and I both have kids who are going off to college and a part of that journey, which is very stressful. Middle school is stressful, all of those things. You know, what's interesting is you brought this up, like our demeanor, I think Oftentimes we can be more aware of how our words can be a little anxiety provoking, but even our demeanor, our nonverbal cues can be. So Bill, can you talk about maybe a couple or a few approaches and how to be a better non-anxious presence for our kids? Yeah, we, we wrote about this in our first book too, just based on the idea that things go better, you know, that, that you can help kids more. If you've got a toddler who's tantruming in a store, you can help them better if you don't get real tense yourself. Or if you, you got an infant crying, same thing. You got a 15-year-old coming home because he just got dumped by his girlfriend or cut from the basketball team. If you can stay calm, and not jump in, it's much, much easier to help. And also, we know not only from nonverbal cues, but your amygdala actually picks up the sweat in, in other people who are highly stressed. Stress is contagious. And the beautiful thing is that calm is contagious as well. Hmm. But most of us, unless we're just wired to be kind of just really laid back, for most of us at this time in this place, it becomes a practice of moving in the direction of being a non-anxious presence. And, and one of the ways that we talk about in both our book is simply taking a long view. 
I mean, but both of you had teenagers, Liz and Kristen. One of the wisest things anybody ever said to me about kids, I don't remember who it was. He said, one of the things I love the most about raising teenagers is every day when they come home from school, you get to see who they're deciding to be. Hmm. Wow. The idea is, is that our job, going back to this consultant thing for a minute, our job is not to make them turn out a certain way, it's to help them figure out who they want to be and how to create a life that they want. If we can take a long view and realize most kids turn out okay, we don't have to solve other problems for them. As Ned said, all of our anxiety about our kids, it's not about now, it's about the future. It's the kids having a hard time. The fear is he's going to get stuck in this negative place and not get better. And our experience is generally, if we don't get stuck as parents, kids move on. They go through stuff and they get out of stuff. One of the amazing things, Ned is one of the most encouraging, upbeat, delightful human beings I've ever met in my entire life. All lies. That he, as, as, as he says, <laughs> often says, when he takes publicly, he spent three months in seventh grade in a pediatric psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's, I have so many stories of kids who are a hot mess. I got a Christmas card this year from a family that said, you were right. I'd opened it up. And the picture of these three kids that I'd followed in the 1990s. Whoa. Uh, and they, they said they all turned out great. <laughs> They're all a hot mess. Yeah. So one thing is we can just remember just what Ned said. See what, what's happening right now. This is part of their path. This is what they apparently need to go through to get where they want to be. And it, it doesn't mean that we condone everything. doesn't mean we don't try to help. We, we, we do. We offer help as much as we can. But if we respect that this is their life, that's maybe part of their path and not catastrophize and not act like somehow we can predict the future, that that's one way of, of moving that direction to be a non-anxious presence. Listen, my mom mm-hmm. still has friends and family who, when I was in high school and wearing, you know, it was the eighties, like blue hair and mohawks and pajama <laughs> pants instead of pants. And they, they would be like, oh, this is going to be the, you know, rebel of the family. And my mom to this day is like, She's doing okay now. (laughs) I'm like the shining example in our family that your high school years does not necessarily like indicate exactly who and how you will become as an adult. (laughs) And uh, by the way, I'm adding you both to our list along with Dr. Ken Ginsburg of the people who remind Mm. us how amazing the teen years are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Indeed. He he is. Oh, he's lovely. He's a great, he <laughs> yes. a, he's a great, well, you know, and the thing is his work with all these teenagers experiencing homelessness and oftentimes thrown out because of their sexual orientation. I mean, just hard, hard, hard stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just terrible stuff and remind ourselves, I mean, even people who are, you know, homeless and addicted to drugs, no matter where you are, you want your life to work out. You want your life to work out. And so people can be, you know, become homeless. People can have blue hair for goodness sakes, right? And still, you know, move in a different direction. I'm teasing you. Mm -hmm. Move in a direction, right, of of building lives that they want. We certainly are always trying to have influence over the young people who come into our orbits. And I do this with my own kids, as Bill does with his and his grandkids, rather than trying to have power over them. Because ultimately, if we treat people like they have brains in their heads and want their lives to work out, that energy is so much more likely to convey confidence it's so much more likely at the, the buy-in where we then can have influence on them. And, and then people aren't using all of their energy to fight us and fight what may very well be in their own best interest. It's just that it's hard because you know, <laughs> I was given a talk and I've made these slides of, of a you know kid in a car, right? And what he's imagining, you know, what they're imagining and driving, you know, like Mario and Dreddy, right? And what the parents <laughs> imagine is the end of Thelma <laughs> and Louise, right? And you know, and, but whose yeah. life is it? You know, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Absolutely. Oh, if oh it gosh. was easy, we wouldn't need your book, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is true. Well, and a wonderful Twitter conversation. This this guy, Rob Nelson, I don't really understand fully his background, but he popped in with a line from Tom Hanks from A League of Their Own. 
And he said, of course, this is hard. The hard stuff is the good stuff. If this was easy, anybody would be doing it. Mm. And when you go back to the point that Bill made a little while ago, that it's with hard emotions, right? Where we get emotionally close to people by being with them when things are hard. And it's getting through hard stuff where we develop our sense of ourselves and what we can do, mm. right? My, my son, people can't tell by watching this. I have a very sort of shiny dome here. I, I, I shaved my head. <laughs> I do too, but this is this a age. couple months ago. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Mine is artificial, so there's that. Um, so, so my 19-year-old son was diagnosed with uh, a brain tumor in the middle of the summer. You know, so I shaved my head to go along with him, and he's almost out of the woods. So we're, we're, oh my we're incredibly lucky, incredibly grateful for the support they've gotten. But I swear to gosh, somewhere a couple of weeks into this, he said to me, "He said I have had such a blessed life." My, my parents are great. My sister's great. My school's been great. My friends are great. He said, I always wondered when I would have some kind of challenge because you don't want to really run through life without any real challenges. And I looked at him like, dude, this was not what we were looking for, right? <laughs> you know, can't someone, can't someone yeah. break up with you or get cut from the basketball team? But Yeah, but, right. But, exactly. A little bit of manufactured angst would have been <laughs> nice. Yeah, right. I, 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 could, I could have pushed you down the stairs. The B you know, team. Honestly, just, just getting on the B team in hockey. Right? That's good. But to his point is the point that Bill made before, you know, one of the reasons when the kid says, you're the king of non-anxious, I thought, you know, part of what I think allows me to tolerate and handle so many things that really are probably well beyond my pay grade and training is the sense that I can handle this because of the things that I've already handled. And, you know, again, back to Madeline Levine, this accumulated disability, because we don't want to see our kids suffer, we protect them short-term from suffering, but deprive them long-term of the very thing that allows them to tolerate stress and bounce back and, you know, and, and push themselves forward in the world. I mean, Lisa Damore talks about stress yeah, is the natural, yeah. what you'll experience when you're at the limits of your ability. And you know what is also at the limit of your abilities? Growth right. and development and confidence. So much of this is if we tolerate our own stress, you close your eyes and go, this is going to be great. You know, if it's painful to watch your kid do these things, don't watch, don't watch, but don't deprive them of what they need to make ourselves feel better. Yeah. yeah. Oh if, man. If, if I could just add that, one of the things we talk about in the book is this new space program. It's an acronym for supportive parenting of anxious childhood emotions. Mm. It, it lowers kids' anxiety by just working with parents. Mm. And one of the things that they ask parents to do is make supportive statements. And supportive statements are things like, you know, your kid is afraid of standing at the bus. So you stand at the bus with them, even though you're the only parent there. And a statement like, I used to think that you couldn't handle the anxiety of standing um, in the bus by yourself. Now I realize I'm completely wrong. I know it makes you really anxious, but I'm 100% confident you can handle the anxiety. Part of being a non-anxious presence mm. is, is communicating courage and, and not fear. Mm -hmm. and, we, and we can do that in part by, I, I know you can handle this. It's a very, very mm -hmm. empowering message. I love that. And I learned that lesson mm -hmm. as a New York City mom whose kids had to take the subway to school in sixth grade. And people would say to me, oh, you let them take the subway, they're 12 years old. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, well, what happens when they get lost? I go, well, they turn around and that's how they learn not to do that again. <laughs> can I tell you my yeah. favorite story about getting lost in the subway <laughs> yeah. in the city? So, so Bill and I have this mutual friend who's the, who's the best college counselor on the planet. And her husband grew up, I forget if it was Queens or the Bronx, I can't remember. And he and his little sister, he was in second grade maybe. And his oh sister was kindergarten. And somehow they missed 
the bus. Mm. And so it's like seven o'clock, you know, it's dark in February in New York City in probably in the 60s. And the kids are nowhere to be seen. Well, how do you track a kid down? The school's closed, there are no cell phones, there's nothing. And so our, our friend has, you know, like a lot of people, a great sense of direction. And he walked with his sister all the way home. Oh my gosh. But of course, the only way to do it for him as a seven-year-old was to retrace the entire bus route. Oh my gosh. And they walked oh my home gosh. for three and a half hours or whatever and ended up at home. Holy cow. Holy cow. Well, right? I'm going to use that story. Right. I know someone who walked their whole entire bus route home. <laughs> That's, forget walking eight miles in the snow. I'm leaving that. I'm leaving yeah. that aside. Yeah. I'm leaving that aside. We live about three blocks from the school that my son attended. And the very first day of school, my wife had walked him. We walked him up to school and then she was going to pick him up. Um, the bus came came to the upper school, lower school. She would pick him up at the bus stop and walk home with him. But on the first day of school, the school release was at two o'clock rather than 3.30 or whatever it was. And so she's at home and the doorbell rings. It's 2.45 and there's our son. And she's like, what are you doing here? He's like, well... (laughs) I was there and you weren't there. So I just walked home and granted it was only three blocks, but he was, you know, six or something. And she felt terrible mom, but, but the look on his face of basically smug satisfaction of like, I got this. It was (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great. I got this. So let's end with this question because, okay, Liz and I are easy sells. Mm -hmm. We were sold before we even started talking to you. We use these kinds of approaches in our parenting. We try. We try. The folks out there. Yes, we try. We try. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's difficult for some people to grasp this, especially, I think, in some ways, if you were parented in a different way and you felt like that was adequate. Right. And you you're like, you still kind of like your parents and like what they did worked fine. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you get people to a place where they can practice this? If they're always going to be the people who are like children should be seen mm-hmm. in various levels. So, you know, maybe, Bill, you can start. How do you get people to a place where they could hear you, where they can read this and have that moment of like, oh, yeah, I could see how this is really going to work. Is it about the fact that it empowers the kids? Like, does it help the relationship? I'd love to hear from you. And then, then Ned, your thoughts too. You know, I, I think in situations, no matter how a kid's being parent, if everybody's happy, you know, that, that's fine. It's just that so many parents who read our book or seek out advice from Ned or me, you know, something's not working. Their kid's really anxious. They don't know how to help. Their kid's not motivated. They don't know what to do. Uh, the, the, the kid's depressed. The parents say, I, I told him a million times, I can't get him to see. I've tried, I've taken away everything. Nothing seems to help. There's just so many families who find that the way that we're trying to parent now, maybe it worked 40 years ago or 50 years or 80 years. It doesn't work very well now. And so most people find this is really hard. I want to make this easier. And the, the kind of stuff that we teach, it's not necessarily easy in the sense psychologically easy because you have to check this kind of basic impulse to solve problems for kids or, or to take responsibility for something that's theirs and make sure they never suffer, whatever it is. We have to check these basic impulses, but actually it just makes it easier. Once you make peace of the fact, you really can't make your kid do anything against his will. Mm -hmm. It's a little terrifying at first to realize that. But once you do, it's liberating because you stop trying to force. And one of the things we talk about in the parent is consultant chapter in our book is the idea of using the language of no force, letting kids know, I know I couldn't force you. I'm not trying to force you. Mm -hmm. I find when parents ask me to talk to kids about stuff or to help them see things in a different light. I always start by saying, I'm not going to try to force you. I'm not going to try to make you see a different way. And when I take force off the table, people are much more likely to listen and respond in a thoughtful way. Mm. So I'm just saying that most people these days, the way that their parents parented them 
doesn't work that well anymore. And they're struggling in some ways. And this stuff, it takes practice, but it ultimately makes it much easier. And I would add to that, there are no perfect, well, parents, the only perfect parents are people who don't have children, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. And as, as this humorist said, I tested a humorous kid 35 years ago, and she said, we shouldn't call it raising children. We should call it lowering parents. Mm. <laughs> now you have the mm-hmm. title for your next book. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, and I think Bill, I think Bill has the, the right point. I mean, there's no one model for parenting. We simply want people to be effective. You know, this is not a book about how to talk to kids about class or sex or race or uh, you know religion. I mean, because when we're talking about values, we can't tell, and we wouldn't deign to try to tell some family what the values are that they should communicate to their kids. That's on them. We simply want people to be effective. And again, they're just it's so stressful if you're trying to convey something to your kid and the energy is all wrong and, and they're fighting you and everyone's upset. And so we really just talk about the tools that really change the energy because when we can change the energy, we make children more receptive to the advice that we have to the values we're trying to impart. And we also change the energy in ways that we just make it emotional closeness, right? Because ultimately one, you know, close connection between a kid and a parent, that's as close as you get to a silver bullet against the effects of stress and anxiety on developing brains. And goodness knows there's enough stress on our world today. We want parents to be one of the healthiest sources of stress relief for children so they can go out and take on more challenge in the world, knowing that they can come home and home is a safe base. And they'll get the, you know, the licking and grooming that they talk about with rat pups, you know, they'll get the hugs and kisses and parents who are trying to understand them and not judging them or telling them what to do all the time. And if we really stop and pause on this for a moment, if things go right, all of us as parents will have relationship with our children as adults way longer than we had relationship with our children as children. Mm. And we can start thinking about that and start that pivot probably a lot earlier than most of us do. Because ultimately, we're not only trying to help build adults, right? You know, how to raise an adult, as Julie Lithgott Hames would say, but we're also trying to build adult relationships with them. Mm. There's a wonderful story in the book about my wife and I have a conversation, walk with my son. We had this really wonderful conversation about what would happen if people were drinking alcohol at a party. And it was fantastic and really gave us this opportunity to share with him some really good advice and what we think some good advice and some values as well. And now that he's a sophomore in college, I remember in his freshman year, we would sort of talk every week. We'd often watch a show together. And then he'd talk about this, that, the other. And he said, I can't believe the things I tell you guys. And my wife and I are absolutely convinced that he shares with us things about friends and relationships and what should I be doing with this? What should I be doing with that? Because we've taken this consultative approach where we're as invested in his success as he is, but mm. we're doing it in a way that we're trying to understand. We're not judging. We're not telling him what to do. We have advice. Goodness knows I have advice on everything. Don't even get me started, <laughs> right? But all of us, I want to be effective. And so, you know, for parents who are like, how do I get started with this? You want to have this relationship with your kids. So it's not just about frigging homework, but when your kid is 28 saying, so mom, dad, I'm thinking about getting engaged to this person. What do you think about that? I mean, aren't those mm. the kind of yeah. conversations you're trying to build for the future? Amazing. That's such good advice. It is such good advice and not anything that I guess I really had thought about. So I know our listeners are going to appreciate this conversation. They're going to get so much out of it, but even more so if they get the book, right? What do you say talking with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home? Wherever you get your books, you will be able to find this. And we are going to do our cool picks of the week and you all are sticking around for that, right? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. We'll be back with that right after this. 
This episode of Spawn is brought to you by Panasonic. As new parents, a baby monitor can give you some much needed peace of mind when you need it most. And that's why the Panasonic Extra Long Range Video Baby Monitor is such an amazing essential gadget that can be used in your own home or if you're planning any holiday travel when you're on the go. This long range baby monitor offers secure, interference free coverage that's customizable and lets you monitor on the go. Parents can rest assured that they are the only ones with eyes and ears on their baby thanks to the powerful DECT technology. With customizable alerts, parents can even track the sound, motion, and temperature that their baby is experiencing in their room in real time. The baby monitor features include a 3.5-inch color monitor as well as a long-life built-in rechargeable battery that offers power for up to 13 hours of standby time and up to five hours of continuous monitor use both in and outside the home. And get this, the powerful DEC technology ensures clear, secure and interference-free signal strength up to 1,500 feet, which is more than the length of four football fields. That's for you, Liz, the data nerd. But please don't leave your baby alone across a football field from you. (laughs) Good advice. Check out the Panasonic Extra Long Range Video Baby Monitor at Target.com. That's the Panasonic Extra Long Range Video Baby Monitor at Target.com. All right. Well, now it's time for our Cool Picks of the Week. Cool Picks of the Week. And, hmm, I don't know. We've got two this week. This will be pretty exciting. I'm very curious. Bill, we're going to start with you. What's your cool pick of the week? Well, because I'm more of the age of a grandparent, well, I'm still a parent, I guess, of adult children, I date myself, but I watched this thing called McCartney 321. And it's basically this iconic record producer, Rick Rubin, interviewing Paul McCartney and playing parts of various Beatle records, just the, the string section or the bass section, and McCartney talking about how this developed. And anybody who has interest in the Beatles, it's the most, fa- I mean, I, I've watched the new documentary. It's the, this, this Rick Rubin interview is really fascinating. Amazing. Oh, that's awesome. what I'm dating you. We've actually nope. been watching the Beatles documentary this week, and I've had to get back oh. in my head nonstop for four straight days. So that was a perfect <laughs> okay. for me. That's okay. great. McCartney, three, two, one. Awesome. Thank you. What about you, Ned? Well, my friend Greg Katz does some something that he calls curries and carols. He has a friend who runs an Indian restaurant and brings in like 8,000 pounds of Indian food and hires a local pianist. And then they have like these inch thick books of all of the sheet music from every carol you've ever heard. And everyone comes over, eats way too much food, has a glass of wine. And then we all sing Christmas carols at the top of our lungs. My friend Greg may be one of the most enthusiastic singers with the least (laughs) amount of talent you've ever met. So Greg, (laughs) if you're listening to this, I hope you appreciate both of those things. So if you're in the DC neighborhood, just stop by, you know, Greg, Cats's house. Um, if you can't do that, <laughs> if you can't oh. do that, I love, you know, my, I, my family are all singers and we started years ago. My son is really musically talented, um, learning different Christmas carols in four-part harmony. And my favorite thing in the world is singing Old Lang Syne with my kids and in preparation for it. And then on and Christmas Eve, um, not everyone can carry a tune the way my wife and kids can. And I'm just along for uh, enthusiasm, but it's pretty darn fun. I love that. That's awesome. And I love the Curries and Carols thing. And hey, even if you're not in DC, what a cool idea for people to just support the local restaurants in their own neighborhood and do something uh, like that. That's awesome. Great idea. Very cool. Yeah, here it would be, well, I was thinking because his name is Greg Katz in New York, it would be like Katz's and Carol's and we would like eat Jewish food <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> sing Christmas carols. <laughs> Coleslaw and carols. We come up with a lot of things. What about you, Liz? So what's your cool pick? Does that have to do with food? It does not. <laughs> well, it could, I suppose. Oh, so right. speaking of Christmas, 
Christmas and Hanukkah and the holidays. You know, we had this great chat in our OutTech Your Kids community on Facebook about all the ways kids are using tech to make their Christmas gift lists and their birthday oh, wish lists. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. was so blown away. I wrote a whole post about all the ways kids are using tech. Like some kids are doing full Google Sheets or PowerPoint presentations about all each <laughs> gift on a different page with pictures and links and like, you know, reasons it should be bought. Anyway, it's such a fun post. It's on coolmomtech.com and it's all like 11 different ways that kids are using tech. And it just reminds me that kids are so resourceful and smart and they're always going to out-tech us, Kristen. They're always one step ahead <laughs> because they, yes. they just are using things in ways we never thought. So th- then do you leave cookies for like Silicon Valley elves? So how does that work? <laughs> Sorry, anyway. No, you leave internet cookies. Yeah. But, um, oh, well, damn. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm here, I'm here all joke, night. But the cookies, <laughs> the cookies are much better, much better. <laughs> 10 points to Gryffindor. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> how about you, Kristen? What's your cool? Well, I mean, how can I not pick the Dolly Parton gift guide over on Cool Mom Picks? Oh, it's so great. I mean, Dolly Parton is just an icon for so many reasons, but she's so cool. So we actually, we, I should say, we, Caroline, did an amazing job rounding up really awesome, hilarious, fun, cool Dolly Parton gifts. Of course, I am very partial to the welcome mat that has, if you can imagine this, listeners, you've got Dolly's amazing face. And to her left, it says, welcome everyone. And then underneath in parentheses, it says, except Jolene. (laughs) 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 Jolene, Jolene. The best, the best. Every year in our holiday gift guide, we try to find kind of the pop culture high points to help people with their gifts. Like we had Ted Lasso earlier Mm. this year. (sighs) And um, I just, I think Dolly is like on everyone's Christmas list this year. So it's a really fun post. It (laughs) is. It is awesome. And just keep in mind, everyone, that we've got Uh, Lots of holiday stuff happening on our site and everything that we spoke about today, the wonderful book, all the cool picks of the week. We won't be sharing Mr. Katz's address. You'll have to (laughs) to hit up Ned for that. But otherwise, you'll find everything over on coolmompicks.com. Ned and Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our awesome engineer, John Bowen, and of course, our amazing guests, Ned Johnson and Dr. William Sticksrude. If you've got a moment, you can leave us a five-star review. We would be so grateful. Hey, tis the season to give. And all you have to do is push a few buttons. Nice segue, Kristen. I like that. You like Very that? Good, yeah. Subscribe, yeah. download, leave us a review. It helps other listeners like you find us. And Liz, you did mention OutTech Your Kids in your Cool Pick of the Week, but we have a couple other communities on Facebook as well, right? We do. We have the Spawn Podcast community on Facebook where we chat about the show topics. We had a special shout out to Daniel Lee, who is always so engaged and has questions yes. and listens to every episode. You are awesome and we are grateful for you. And if you want to join us, feel free to pop in. And we also have Recipe Rescue, which at this time of year is hop-in. Non-judgmental, helpful advice about food, feeding kids, what to cook, how to save whatever your kids have ruined (laughs) in the oven. (laughs) You name it. You have a question, there's a parent there who's going to help you with it. It's pretty awesome. I agree. Thanks so much for listening to Spawn. This is Kristen. And this is Liz. Have a great day. Bye.